right, well, good morning, Coastal. Happy Mother's Day. Before we get into the Word, I want to make a few quick announcements. Uh, we have Wave Camp coming up. This is for fifth, uh, first through fifth graders. You can register at gocoastal.org slash summer events. There are the dates there. It's June 27th through July 1st. Uh, next is our Williamsburg Picnic and Prayer. This is going to be on May 15th at 5 p.m. at Walsingham Academy. And the purpose for this is we're going to be praying that God would open a door and create an opportunity for us to plant a campus in Williamsburg. We have a lot of people that travel from Williamsburg, and we would love to have a campus in their community so that they can go to church in their own community. Uh, so Coastal will provide the main dish. We just ask that you bring a side dish if you want to participate in that. Uh, May 15th, 5 p.m. at Walsingham Academy in Williamsburg. And then uh, we have the Men's Breakfast and Cornhole Tournament. This is May 14th, 8 a.m. at the Yorktown campus. Uh, there's a cost for men. Uh, the, the event is for men 12 and up. Uh, it's $10 per adult and $5 for 12 to 18. So there's more info at gocoastal.org slash events if you're interested in participating in that. So today we are going to be wrapping up our series entitled Now. And in this series, we've been exploring the question, what is Jesus doing now? We talk all the time about what Jesus has done, um, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about what is he doing now. William Symington said this. He said, there's a disposition in many to regard what Christ has done to the neglect of what he is doing. Not that we should have men think less of the former, but more of the latter. And so that's been our goal in this series is to think more about what is Jesus Christ doing right now. And so I'll give a quick recap. So far in this series, uh, Pastor Nate opened us up in Revelation chapter one. He gave us a, a vivid description of the risen Jesus Christ. We, you know, we saw him as our warrior king. He's coming to vindicate his people and judge his enemies. And then uh, last week, Pastor Nate continued from John chapter 14, explaining what it means that Christ prepared a place for us, that Christ is bringing us home to live in eternity with him. And so today we are going to be exploring Jesus Christ as our high priest who lives to make intercession for us. The intercessory work of Jesus, it's a, it's a doctrine that tends to be neglected in the church. And I believe one of the reasons for that is that we, we don't always fully understand what it even is. Uh, and we don't fully understand how absolutely essential it is to our salvation. It, it's one of those things that I think we tend to take for granted, uh, especially those of us that have been in church for a long time. We say, oh, yeah, I know that. You know, Jesus intercedes for me. Jesus prays for me. Yeah, yeah I know that. But if somebody said, hey, explain that to me like I'm five, would you be able to do it? And admittedly, as I was coming into preparing for this sermon, I, I thought, man, I don't think I understand this as well as I thought, because now that I'm actually having to explain it, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. And so my goal today is to take what can be a complicated and nuanced doctrine, and I want to make it very simple, practical, and helpful to you. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, I want it to be helpful to you this morning. So in order to accomplish that goal, I want to seek to answer three questions and make application from those answers. First is, what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? Second, what is the intercessory work of Jesus? And third, what is Jesus' intercession accomplishing? So the main point of this sermon can best be summed up from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for its truth. I thank you that Jesus is at your right hand right now interceding for us. Father, I pray that you would teach us what that means, teach us to appreciate it and rest in it this morning. I pray that you would uh, guard us from error, Lord, that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, enable me to preach your word faithfully and accurately, that we would all uh, be more like your son and, and cause to be in deeper relationship and deeper worship in all of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first question this morning, what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? Now, we may not use that term priest a lot in Protestant Christian circles, right? Uh, but the high priest was and is one of the most significant figures and one of the most significant roles among the people of God. The role of the high priest in, in Israel in the Old Covenant, we see from the book of Leviticus chapter 16, that on the annual day of atonement, the high priest, he was the one who served as a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. Now, what this means is he was a representative. He represented the people before God. The high priest, he would first make a sacrifice of a bull to atone for his own sins. And that word atone or atonement, it simply means to, to make a payment for wrongdoing, to take something wrong and to make it right, to bring two uh, parties back into unity. And so the, the high priest, he would make a sacrifice of atonement to pay for his sin. Then he would make a sacrifice of a goat to atone for the sins of the people. And after making these sacrifices to atone for sins, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and then he would take it into what was called the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God manifested his presence among the people. And he would enter into the presence of God as a representative for the people, and he would sprinkle the blood of atonement onto what was called the mercy seat. And this would atone for the sins of the people. Now, we could spend all day discussing the significance of this. this is, there's a whole lot to dig into there, but I, I want to just draw your attention to three things that this shows us this morning. First, it's that sin separates people from God. God is holy. God is righteous. And guess what? We're not. People are sinful. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we, our sin separates us from him. And because of that, second thing, people can only approach God through a mediator. We need a mediator. We need someone to represent us before a holy God. And thirdly, it's that bloodshed is required to atone for sin. The sacrificial system of the old covenant, it, it showed us that innocent blood was required to pay for sin. Now, the Levitical priesthood, it was, it was merely a shadow of the true high priest to come, Jesus Christ. To, and to understand how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of and the, the supersession of this, this Levitical priesthood, we need look no further than the book of Hebrews it's some great homework for you today is to just go home and read through the book of Hebrews. It's an incredible book that will make you savor Christ so much more. Uh, Hebrews 5 tells us Jesus didn't exalt himself to be the high priest, but he was appointed by God. We see that it was prophesied of the Messiah in places like Psalm 110.4 that he, the Messiah would be a priest forever. And unlike the priests of the old covenant, Jesus didn't offer the blood of animals, but Jesus, when he represented his people, he offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement for sin. And he is now the mediator of God and his people in a new and better covenant. Amen. 
Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 tells us, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He offered up himself, church, once and for all. It's finished. Hebrews 9.15 goes on to say, therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So because of Christ's death, all who are called by God may experience eternal life. And unlike the priests of old, the priesthood of Jesus, it's an everlasting, eternal priesthood. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected all those who are being sanctified. And this brings us to what Jesus is doing right now. He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. He is waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet, church. He's the king. He's reigning in heaven. But is that all he's doing? He's just sitting in heaven at the right hand of God waiting? No, no, of course not. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. He lives to make intercession, church. He is interceding for us. That's what he's doing right now. So what is the intercessory work of Jesus? What is intercession? You know, some of you, when you hear that word intercession or intercede, you may think of praying for someone. You know, I'm, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm interceding for you. I'm standing in the gap. And that's true. That, that's what it is. That's what it means. But that's not all it means. To make intercession, it's, it's to make an appeal. It's to make a petition um, this is a word that has been used to describe going before a king and bringing a petition to a king on behalf of someone else. The Puritan author John Owen in his commentary of Hebrews, he defined Christ's intercession this way. His continual appearance for us in the presence of God by virtue of his office as the high priest over the house of God, representing the efficacy of his oblation, which just means uh, sacrificial offering. So the efficacy of his oblation accompanied with tender care, love, and desires for the welfare, supply, and deliverance and salvation of the church. So a question that comes to my mind when, when studying this is, why is this necessary? Think about it. Jesus paid for sin once and for all. He, he secured our salvation and his atonement. He said, it is finished on the cross. So why does he need to intercede for us? Why is this necessary? 
Jesus' atonement and his intercession are inseparably related. They are two sides of the same coin. I think Charles Spurgeon said it best when he said this, the Lord Jesus Christ in his perpetual priesthood lives on purpose to be the advocate, defender, patron, mediator, and interposer for his people. You who come to God by him will highly esteem this constant service rendered to you by your Lord. Whereas Christ by his death provided all that was necessary for your salvation, he by his life applies the provision that he made in his death. Isn't that profound? So Jesus' atoning work on the cross was, efficient, uh, was sufficient to pay for our sin? Yes. The work was finished on the cross? Yes. He's already provided everything necessary for your salvation? Yes. But it's in his intercession that he applies those benefits to us. William Symington uh, made a really helpful comparison, I think, uh, between the atonement and intercession, he compared it to God's creation and God's providence. So think about this with me for a moment. I think this will be helpful for some of us. So God creates the world, right? He created, the work was finished, and then on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. The work was complete. He created in an act. And yet we know from reading the scriptures, God has a providential work where he sustains that creation. He superintends that creation. He is still working in and through his completed creation. And in much the same way, Jesus Christ made a, an act of atonement. The work is finished, and yet he is still sustaining that work through his intercession. So how does he do this? How does he apply the benefits of his atonement to us? Now, we aren't told exactly what form his intercession takes. Uh, does he literally pray verbally to the Father? Does he literally pray for us by name? Um, you know, is he sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, Lord, please forgive Bill. I, I know he's a real bonehead, um, but I died to save him, so please forgive. You know, if your name's Bill, I just picked that name at random. I wasn't pointing <laughs> fingers. You know, these kinds of questions have puzzled theologians for centuries, and I don't, I don't necessarily think it's uh, necessary or even helpful to speculate on these things. Um, these are two members of the Trinity in a heavenly realm. We're just not privy to that kind of knowledge, and I'm okay with that. But with that said, I do think that we can rightly draw the conclusion that Jesus is not pleading with the Father to do something he doesn't want to do. Think about it for a minute. Please do not make the, state, the mistake this morning that God the Father is waiting to pour out his wrath on you and Jesus is holding him back saying, no, please, please don't do it, Father. No, that's, that's a completely wrong picture of Christ's intercession. Remember, Christ's atonement was the Father's idea. Jesus' intercession is the Father's idea. This was all part of the Father's plan the father tells the son in Psalm 280, he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The father wants the son to ask. The father wants the son to ask for his people to be made his inheritance. The father loves the son. The father always answers the son's prayers. 
And that's why the efficacy of his intercession is certain, church. Because when Christ intercedes for you, the Father always answers. So to summarize the intercessory work of Jesus, we could say that three things. He appears, he presents, and he prays. He appears before the Father on our behalf as our representative. He presents his finished work of atonement as the basis for that representation. And he prays to the Father to apply the benefits of his atonement to all believers. This is what Jesus, our great high priest, is doing right now. He lives to make intercession for you, church. And so third question we're gonna answer this morning is what is Jesus' intercession accomplishing? Other ways we could state this question would be what is the content of his intercession? To what end is Jesus interceding? I think the best indicator we have of the content of Jesus' intercession is uh, to look at the prayers that he prayed during his life on earth. And this brings us to our main text today, John 17, 9 through 21. So all of that was introduction. Now we're at our main text. So this passage is often referred to as the high priestly prayer, and rightly so. It's in this prayer that we get a glimpse of what our high priest Jesus is asking the Father to do for his people. You know, this prayer, uh, it takes place at the end of what's known as the upper room discourse. So Jesus and the disciples, they had the last supper, and then there's this long discourse uh, where Jesus is kind of giving his final words. This is where John 14 actually falls in that we looked at last week. And so at the end of that discourse, Jesus prays this amazing, incredible prayer. We could, we could do a whole preaching series just on this one prayer. It's, a, it's amazing, and we would never, ever mind the riches that are in it. Um, he prays this prayer, and then right after the, the conclusion of this prayer is when they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested, where he, and he will eventually be put to death. So John 17, 9 through uh, 21 says, I am praying for them, speaking of his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, or in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, 
John 17 is one of the longest prayers we have recorded in the Gospels. This is just a section of it, um, but it's the entire chapter that makes up the prayer. Oftentimes, we see Jesus goes off alone to pray, right? And we're not privy to the content of those prayers. But this prayer is different. This prayer, Jesus consciously chose to pray in front of his disciples. And I think the reason for that is he wants them to know the content of this prayer. He wants us to know the content of this prayer. First thing we see in this section of the prayer uh, is for whom Jesus is praying and for whom Jesus is not praying. Verses 9 and 10, he says, I am praying for them, speaking of his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those uh, whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. He says he's not praying for the world, but he's praying for those whom the Father has given him. And what he's acknowledging here is that these men already belonged to God. They were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, and the Father has now given them to the Son. This highlights the sovereignty of our God in choosing a people for himself. We see in John 17, 20, This is the really good news for you and me, that this prayer isn't just for these disciples, but it's for all who will believe through their word. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes you, church. If you have believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles, then as we look at this prayer, please know this, Jesus prays these things for you and for me and for all who will believe. He's praying these things. And what is it that he's asking the Father to do for you? There's two main things we see in this prayer that Jesus asked the Father to do uh, for his disciples. First is to keep them. Second is to sanctify them. And I think these two things provide us a summary of what uh, Christ's intercession is accomplishing for us. The first thing, keep them. To keep means to protect or to guard. Uh, I asked my son this week what he thought I should preach on this Sunday, and uh, he said a lot of stuff, but one of the things he said is that God attacks us, which means protects. He said Jesus attacks us too, and he had no idea what I was going to talk about, but he was right. That is exactly what we're talking about today. To keep means to protect or guard. We know this, uh, this primarily refers to a spiritual protection. And there's a a couple of ways we can tell that. It's because the result of it is oneness with the Father and the Son um, and because it's contrasted with being spiritually lost. So we know that this is a spiritual protection. Verse 11 says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So we are kept so that we may be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is asking the Father to protect our oneness with him in the sense that we belong to him. This is This is about salvation here. He's asking the Father to protect our salvation in him. And he prayed, keep them in your name. That phrase, in your name, or it could be translated by your name, it's a way of saying by your power, by your authority. Biblically, when you said something was in a name, it it symboled everything that represented that person. It's, It's in his power, in his authority. 
So Jesus is recognizing that his disciples are only kept through the power and authority of the Father. I want to ask you this morning, how do you know that you will wake up tomorrow and continue being a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? How do you know you won't change your mind? How do you know you won't just fail and stop being a Christian? This is the essence of of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which simply means all true believers in Christ will persevere to the end. I agree with uh, the late R.C. Sproul. He said that the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints could more accurately be called the preservation of the saints. And the reason for that is because it's not our persevering that makes us persevere. It's God's preserving that makes us persevere. God is preserving us. God is the one that causes us to remain Christians to the end. He's keeping us in his name. And he said, not one was lost except the son of, destru- the son of destruction. What does it mean by lost? They got lost at the mall or something? Like, no. It means lost eternally. This is eternal spiritual lostness. The son of destruction. This is referring to Judas, his betrayer. Why was Judas lost? Jesus tells us, he says, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This was foretold before it ever happened. Judas was marked out for destruction. This was part of God's plan. Judas was not a a true disciple that fell away. Judas was uh, never a true disciple at all. And that's why he was not kept. That's why he was lost. Jesus said in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, this keeping work of the Father, it protects us from the attacks of the evil one, referring to Satan. I think the best example of this in Scripture is Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, which is another name for Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the fundamental difference between Peter and Judas. This is the difference. When Satan demanded to sift Peter like wheat, Jesus interceded on his behalf that his faith would not fail. And notice he says, when you have turned again. Not if, when. When Jesus intercedes for you, the result is certain. No, no question, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. This shows us that Satan can't do anything without the permission of God. That should be a great comfort to those of us who are suffering. Satan can't do anything to you that is not part of God's will for you. It also shows us that Jesus' intercession always overrules the demands of the evil one. You know, we know that Peter did experience temporary failure, right? I mean, he denied the Lord three times. He abandoned him just as Jesus prophesied that he would. But it's almost as if Jesus loaded Satan's weapon with non-lethal rounds and said, here, do your worst. Do your worst. You're not gonna take him out. 
Not going to happen. And in the same way, you and I, we might experience momentary failures. We might experience seasons of failure even. But our faith will not fail finally because our, our great high priest Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Jesus' intercession it results in us being kept by the Father so that we may be one with him. And what does he tell us the result of this oneness is? In verse 13, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The result of this oneness with the Father is the fulfillment of the Son's joy. We have overwhelming joy because of our oneness with our God. If you're a Christian today and you're not filled with joy, something's wrong. You need to examine yourself because something's wrong. We should be the most joyous people on the planet. Even if your circumstances are terrible, we have the joy of oneness with our Father. We have the fulfillment of the Son's joy. Verse 21, he says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice here, this oneness that we have with the Father, it's so that the world may believe. There's an evangelistic element to our oneness with God. This is why Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And then in verse 18, he said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We have a job to do, church. We are kept in order to fulfill this mission that Jesus has given us. We are also kept that we may be sanctified. He asked the Father to sanctify them. Verse 16 he said, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So to be sanctified is to be set apart. It's to be made holy. It's to be made more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul spoke of our sanctification this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. He said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You ever wonder, man, what's God's will for me? Well, Paul's telling you right here, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's powerful stuff. That's convicting stuff. But Jesus is asking the Father, sanctify them. Make them holy. And just as sure as our atonement has paid for our sin, Jesus, through his atonement and through his intercession, is securing our sanctification as well. We're all painfully aware that this is not an instantaneous process, right? <laughs> we, don't, we don't say yes to Jesus and immediately be made holy. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. It's a progressive work. 
It's a progressive work that happens daily as we repent of sin and we draw near to God through Jesus. Our role in sanctification is active. It's not passive. It takes real work on our part. We have a real part to play. We do real work, and it is work. But we have to understand it is the Father through his Holy Spirit that he's given us that initiates and sustains and completes this work within us. Amen? Last week, we talked about uh, what it means that Jesus has prepared a place for us. And understand, Jesus, through his intercession, he's, he's praying us home. He's praying us into that home of heaven that he has prepared. And what he's asking the Father to do here, in the same way that he prepared a place for us, he's asking the Father to prepare us for that place through our sanctification. We are sanctified in the truth, and that truth is the word of God. Church, we've got to stand on the truth of God's word. Do not cave to the pressures of this culture. Do not suppress the truth for a lie. Cling to the truth of God's word now more than ever. God the Father sanctifies us by bearing the fruit of his word in our lives. And it's through his Holy Spirit living in us. And church, this is the evidence of our being kept. If God is sanctifying you, you can trust that he's keeping you. So as we close today, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to conclude this morning by uh, looking at some applications of these truths from God's word. These are promises in God's word that we can uh, build our lives on. We can count on. Why? Because Jesus is our high priest who lives to make intercession for us. I want to ask you this morning, do you struggle with guilt or shame? Maybe you've done things in your life that you just don't know how to get over. You've hurt people, you've, and you just struggle with guilt and shame. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus in his intercession is giving you fresh mercy, fresh grace every day to cover your sin, to take away your guilt and your shame. Do you struggle with temptation? Do you have a besetting sin that you just can't seem to get over? You're struggling with that temptation. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells you this morning, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you struggle with temptation this morning, know that your high priest has struggled with every temptation you have and he defeated it. He has defeated all temptation. And you can go confidently before the throne of grace, before God your Father, because you have a great high priest, Jesus, who gives grace and help in our times of need. Maybe you're here today and you struggle with assurance of your salvation. You heard me talk about persevering to the end and you said, you know what? I just don't know if that's me. 
I don't know. I really, I struggle with that. How do I really know I'm saved? How do I know that I'm going to persevere? Romans 8, 33 through 35 says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And of course, the answer to all of those questions is no. Nobody can separate us. Nothing can separate us. Because Christ intercedes for us. John 10, 10, Jesus said, My Father has given them to me, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Maybe you're here today and you aren't yet a follower of Jesus. You recognize today that your sin has separated you from God, that you need a mediator. You need someone to represent you before a holy God. You need a high priest to intercede on your behalf. I want to tell you this morning, he's already atoned for your sin. If you're here today and you're, you believe, he's already atoned for your sin. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I would simply tell you this morning, you need to repent of your sin. You need to confess your faith in Jesus and that God raised him from the dead. You need to draw near to God through him. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna experience the overwhelming joy of oneness with your father. He's gonna keep you and he's gonna sanctify you. Uh, members of our prayer team are gonna be up front. I invite them now. If you wanna know more about what it means to follow Christ, or maybe you're here and you just have a general prayer need, you're going through something tough, um, and you just need somebody to talk to, somebody to pray with, somebody to agree with you in prayer, they're here and they're um, more than willing to do that with you this morning. You can come up during the last song or after service, uh, whatever you're more comfortable with, and pray with them. So for those of us who are in Christ today, I wanna uh, conclude meditating on this application that the writer of Hebrews gave us. After reflecting on this profound truth of Christ as our high priest, the writer of Hebrews gave this charge to the church, and I think it's uh, the best, the most fitting charge that we could look at today for us as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but in encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that you have represented us. You've atoned for our sin and you are now living to make intercession for us. 
I thank you that all of these promises in your word are yes and amen because Jesus Christ is at your hand interceding for us. Lord, I pray that all those who heard your word today would respond appropriately, that we would draw near to you through Jesus. We would worship you and love you and experience oneness with you all the more. And let our joy be fulfilled as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.